Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the events that you've led us through this past week, the ways that you've stretched us, grown us, led us, protected us, provided for us, guided us, given us the comfort and peace and love that we need. We thank you for giving us opportunities, people in our paths uh, to share your love with, to share the message of your gospel with. And I pray that you would do so this upcoming week as well. Right here at this moment, we are all gathered together in your house to glean everything we can from your word, to soak it all up, and then to wring it out into other people's lives in this upcoming week. I pray that your spirit would go forth and open our spiritual eyes to hear what you have for us today, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of our understanding of the natural world around us, we just simply take for granted these days. But it wasn't that long ago that we as humans did not know these things even existed. For instance, we didn't know about microorganisms all the way up to the 1860s, when French scientist Louis Pasteur, you might, have, you might have heard his name in another word, pasteurization, discovered how microorganisms are what ferment different foods. This led to what became germ theory. Before Pasteur's discovery, most people, including scientists, had no clue that a lot of disease came from outside the body through these microorganisms. A couple hundred years before that, Sir Isaac Newton was inspired by watching an apple fall from a tree and discovered the theory of gravity. This led to Newton's publication in 1687, which detailed his three laws of motion and laid the foundation for modern physics. In fact, it was based off of Newton's discovery of gravity and motion that more and more advancements in electricity were made until Italian physicist Alessandro Volta invented the first electric battery. Interestingly, because of his work with electricity, he earned having his last name be where we get the term Volt. There you go. You're with me so far. Okay. Volt from. I'm glad to know some people are awake. All right. These scientific discoveries of the natural world were shocking to us because we're human. We could not conceive of a world where these discoveries existed until they did. But these discoveries are most certainly not shocking to God, since what? He created all of it. And beyond that, there are even greater and indescribable manifestations of his power outside of this natural realm that we can see. So what does this reveal to us about who God is, who Jesus is as God, and how all of this should impact our understanding and view of God today? Our passage today is actually a continuation of what we started last week. Last week, we wrapped up the experience of Jesus healing the man who could not walk for almost 40 years. 
We delved into a little bit of what kind of a piece of work that guy was. You remember him from last week? There's a very good chance that even after all that he witnessed Jesus do in his life, and even miraculously heal him to the point of outright walking again, he never ended up putting his faith and trust in Jesus for his salvation, even after everything he saw and experienced. In fact, what we see is time and time again, we see him ignoring Jesus and making things more difficult for him and his ministry. Last week, we talked about how that after Jesus warned him that he better not revert back to his old sinful ways or face greater discipline from God, instead of heeding Jesus' warning, this guy just goes to the Pharisees and throws Jesus under the bus. The Pharisees now know that it was Jesus they had beef with for healing someone on the Sabbath day, and they challenged Jesus' ministry and authority. When Jesus responds with, hey, we all know that God never takes a day off from what he does in, 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 in lives and in the world. God is always working, and so am I. By Jesus making this statement, he was telling the Pharisees that whatever they thought of them, they needed to get rid of. For in reality, he was God. That had to be what Jesus was getting at in verse 17 because it's the only reason that explains the Pharisees' immediate reaction to hearing that statement from Jesus, which we're picking up with in verse 18. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 18. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. Or you can look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. On jo in John chapter 5, verse 18, we read this. This is the immediate reaction the Pharisees have had to Jesus making this statement. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, notice how this is written. John writes that upon hearing Jesus' statement equating him with God, the Pharisees were seeking all the more to kill him. This isn't their first thought, the first time they've had this thought. But now they're seeking all the more to kill him. In other words, this is not the first time they were seeking to kill him. This experience simply solidified the more reason in their minds to kill Jesus. Now, in a purely human understanding, we can see why they would have that desire. God is God, and there is no one else beside him. That's the prayer that the Jewish people to this day say every day. So for Jesus to make the statement equating himself with God meant in their minds that he was declaring that there were two gods and he was one of them. This was insanity at best and downright blasphemy at worst. So we see why these guys would be so irate that they would be seeking all the more to kill Jesus. 
So the rest of what we're looking at today is not done somewhere on a peaceful mountainside where there's birds chirping and everything's all hunky-dory. This is done in this highly antagonistic situation with the Pharisees. It's in the middle of this strong challenge by the Pharisees in this highly charged atmosphere that Jesus provides further explanation of what he was talking about and who he is. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. By John including this, he has a very clear purpose in mind. Not only has John revealed who Jesus is in connection with God at the very beginning of this letter in John chapter 1, you know, all that stuff about the Word and the Word becoming flesh, but now we have Jesus' own words revealing the same exact truth. Verse 19 is a clarifying explanation of Jesus' claim to deity in verse 18. In the Pharisees' minds, they think Jesus is making the claim that there are two gods, a form of polytheism that existed everywhere else around them, and that he is one of those two gods. They cannot even begin to conceive of any other understanding of Jesus telling the truth than this viewpoint that they have in their minds. But Jesus begins to give an explanation here. That there are not two gods, each acting independent of another. He is God as subordinate in position to God the Father. That's what he's getting at in verse 19. He, as God, is subordinate in position to God the Father. It's God the Father who has the plan. It's God the Father who calls the shots of what happens in lives and in this world. And it's God the Father who orchestrates everything in our lives and in this world to happen according to his plan. The Son of God is the same exact essence, nature, and being as God the Father, but he does not hold the same position as God the Father within the Trinity. The Son of God holds that title because he is not another God separate from the Father and with his own agenda, nor is he a being who is created by or born from God the Father. There are different cults out there that disguise themselves as Christianity that believe exactly that. The Son of God is equal in essence, nature, power, and being to God the Father. And Jesus himself here explains why he is called the Son of God. Maybe you've been confused before in your past. You've wondered, why is Jesus called the Son of God, but he's also supposed to be God himself? How does that all work together? He is called the Son of God because he is subordinate in position to God the Father. Just like how a family illustration was back in Jesus' day. While perhaps not as a parent today, back in Jesus' day, the father was seen by everyone as the authority in that family. The son was taught the father's craft, the father's job. 
just like how Jesus learned carpentry from his earthly father, Joseph. What the earthly son saw his earthly father do, show, or teach, that was all he could emulate. And he certainly did not try to usurp his earthly father's authority. This is the image that Jesus is using here in verse 19. This was an image that everyone would have been well aware of, that Jesus used as an illustration of how he related to God the Father as the Son of God. By Jesus saying that just as God was always working, he was always working, the work he did was only what God the Father wanted him to do. Certainly, as Jesus says in verse 19, he never has and never will try to usurp God the Father's authority. Everything that the Son of God is and does is in perfect love for God the Father. Likewise, it's the same for God the Father towards God the Son. Verse 20, we're getting into some Christology here. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son is one of perfect love. There is no jealousy. There is no ulterior motives. And there is no resentment. The Son submits to the Father's authority out of perfect love. And the Father, as we read here, reveals what he's doing to the Son out of perfect love. See, as noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus isn't just a part of what God is doing. Jesus is all of what God is doing, as God has revealed everything that he's doing to him. That's why John has already written, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. All of the glory, grace, and truth of God is revealed in Jesus. There is no other source of supernatural glory, grace, or truth. It simply cannot come from Muhammad, Buddha, the Dalai Lama, a so-called fortune teller, the stars, social media memes, your smooth-talking friend, or any other source. It can only and will only come from Jesus. And any truth we need to know only comes from God's word, as Jesus is the embodiment of God's word. If we want to know what in the world God is doing, all we must do, all we need to do, and all we can do is go straight to the source, Jesus and his word. Not only that, but out of love, the Father shows the Son how to perform even greater miracles so that those who witness them will be rendered speechless. The miracle that the Pharisees had just witnessed, that of the man being healed to walk again, will completely pale in comparison to what humanity will witness God doing. Like those scientific discoveries of the natural world shocked humanity at different points in history, humanity will be rendered speechless at the wonders God has done and will do through Jesus. 
One of those wonders that will render humanity speechless is raising people from the dead. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. It was just understood in Jewish thought at that point that God was the only one who could raise people from the dead. That characteristic, power, and authority over life and death was only reserved for God the Father. God is the one who created humankind in the first place and breathed the breath of life into the man. It's written throughout the Old Testament that it's God who gives life and takes away life. It's God who has the authority over life. If a prophet in the Old Testament raised someone back from the dead, as in Elijah's case, it was only by crying out to God to do the actual raising of the dead person. But Jesus' words are earth-shattering here. Yes, as Jesus says, God the Father has that authority as everybody knew. But the Son of God has that exact same authority over life and death. The Son will be raising people from the dead by His own authority and power. If there was ever a power conceivable by humanity, it was the ultimate greatest power to be able to raise somebody from the dead. Right? And yet, that is exactly what Jesus is claiming he has the authority and the power to do. In fact, the Apostle John is the only one out of the four gospel writers to include an account of Jesus doing just that. In John chapter 11, Jesus acts on this claim, bringing back to life a man who had been dead for four days. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, what Jesus is fully claiming here is both a physical raising back to life in the form of a resurrected body and a spiritual raising back to life in the form of eternal life. Jesus is claiming the same exact authority and power in both of these areas. When we come to Jesus in repentance for our hopeless sinfulness, and ask God for forgiveness of our sin based on Jesus, paying our sin-death penalty as a substitute on our behalf. He forgives us, and He gives us the spiritual resurrection from death and hell unto eternal life. Our soul is saved and sealed by the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit, as 100% assurance that our soul will go to be with Jesus the moment we take our last breath. At the moment we come to God in repentance and surrender to Him based on Jesus' death and resurrection, Scripture tells us that we experience a spiritual resurrection as well. We are immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit who immediately goes to work on our hearts and transforms the entire way we process through everything we experience in this life. Our inner, se inner selves that had once been doomed to be inclined to simply do what is the selfish and sinful way in every situation are now led and guided by the Holy Spirit. 
our once blind eyes to the things of God and any kind of understanding of his word are opened and he reveals deep truths about himself to us through the reading and teaching of his word. This is all the spiritual resurrection of who we are, given to us by the authority and power of Jesus, which will culminate in eternal life with him. Paul describes this spiritual resurrection in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Who's the one that continues to live in me? Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But that's not all of it. Jesus will also give us resurrected physical bodies. At the point of death, our souls immediately enter the presence of Jesus, but our bodies remain on earth and decay by whatever way under the sun. Burial, internment, cremation, burned at the stake, explosion, drowning, vaporization, or any other earthly demise. None of it matters which way we go. None of it matters for Jesus, who is the power by which everything in the universe was created, according to John chapter 1, has the utmost authority and power to resurrect any and every type of deceased physical body. There will be a day on this earth, known in, in theology as the rapture, when Jesus will partially return and bring with him all the souls he's been keeping safe all this time. The souls of those who put their faith and trust in looking towards him as messianic deliverer for thousands of years before his birth, death, and resurrection, and the souls of those who put their faith and trust in him as messianic deliverer for thousands of years after his birth, death, and resurrection. All the physical bodies of those who died before this event will be resurrected, reunited with their souls, and transformed into perfect, glorified bodies, free from sin, de decay, sickness, pain, and fit for eternity. Those who still are alive at the point of this event will also be caught up with those who had died and also be given the same exact glorified bodies. And we will all be with Jesus forever in these newly resurrected bodies. Amen? Amen. Paul reveals, reveals to the Thess Thessalonian church, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord, say it with me, forever. Paul describes the same exact event to the Corinthian church as well. He says it will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death 
is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I love those verses, don't you? If we didn't before, now we know what happens to us when we die and what we have to look forward to in the future. Therefore, when we face the death of loved ones and our own mortality, we can have this assurance, as Paul says in direct connection to his teaching on the rapture. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. It's not a secret. It's revealed very clearly in God's word. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. So, encourage each other with these words. And guess what? There is nothing else, prophecy-wise, that needs to happen before this happens. Every biblical prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before this happens has already been fulfilled. And as we see everything that's happening in the world unfolding before our eyes, this event looks like it could happen at any moment, doesn't it? While we wait for this physical resurrection, we live our lives according to the spiritual resurrection Jesus has already given to us through our faith in him for salvation and the grace he's had on us in order to have that faith. All of that will be played out in direct connection with verse 21. But there is the flip side to this authority as well. Since Jesus has the authority and power to give both spiritual and physical resurrection to those who put their faith in him, he will also be given the authority and power to judge and condemn those who don't put their faith in him. Verses 22 through 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. When people retort to them not living the way God wants them to live with the comeback, yeah, well, only God can judge me. My mental reaction is always, do you really know what you're saying when you say that? Yes, only God can judge you, but God, and specifically Jesus, will judge you. There will be a day when those who never surrender their eternal fates to Jesus will stand before him and will be forced to honor him at that point. The only basis for escaping the fires of eternal hell or if you accepted Jesus' death and resurrection as paying for your sin, and you believing that is your only foundation now, not when you're standing before him at that point. By that point, it's too late. When you come to that point in your life, when you accept Jesus' death and resurrection as paying for your sin, and you believe that is your only foundation, your name will be written in what's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Anyone who never made that decision only have this to look forward to. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. These are not my words. 
This is straight out of God's Word. The same Jesus whose death and resurrection provides the only way to spiritual and physical resurrection is the same judge who will cast you into the lake of fire for all of eternity. It's the cold, hard truth, but it's the truth nonetheless. Instead of claiming this is unfair of God, that accepting Jesus as Savior and King is the only way to be saved from this, we should be grateful that he even provided any kind of way, the way, to escape Jesus' judgment and be resurrected. Jesus himself says later on in the same gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There's no other way. That is an open and shut case. There's no wiggle room there. Jesus is both the Savior of those who put their trust in his death and resurrection as their only basis to be saved from Jesus as also judge and condemning them to an eternity in the lake of fire. This is a difficult truth. But especially in a world where everything is watered down to not be offensive, I cannot let you leave this place today without knowing this. Whether or not you accept it for yourself is up to you. When Jesus says in verse 23 in this morning's passage, and then further on in 14.6, that you cannot claim a belief in God or some kind of higher power and not take Jesus as the Son of God, as your Savior and authority, he's not messing around. You can't have God without faith in Jesus. If you say, well, I believe in God, or I believe in a higher power, and I'm a good person, or if you believe everyone should just believe in something and whatever they call God and just try to be a good person, and you never honor the Son by taking Jesus as your salvation and authority, you will end up in the same exact place as the one who mocked God and never believed that he existed in the first place. Verse 23 in this morning's passage and John 14, 6 are very, very clear cut. If you want both the spiritual and physical resurrection unto eternal life, you must honor the Son by taking Him as your only way to salvation from His judgment and taking Him and Him as the Word of God as the authority over the rest of your life. That's it. That's it. Jesus is very clear about it right here, and there's no way around it. Jesus describes this only way, lastly, in this morning's passage. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This recaps everything we've just talked about. The only way to pass from judgment and into spiritual and physical resurrection is to believe both God's and Jesus' own claims about himself. What are those claims in a nutshell? Exactly what we just read and explored this morning. Number one, Jesus, as the Son of God, is God himself and reveals everything we are to understand about God. 
Number two, our only hope to escape judgment is to place our faith and trust in Jesus and that his death and resurrection as a substitute on our behalf is our only hope of forgiveness and salvation. Number three, our only hope to escape judgment is to honor the Son of God by taking him and his word as the only authority in our lives. And number four, then and only then can we pass from labeled as one headed for judgment and eternal condemnation to be resurrected both spiritually and physically. That's it in a nutshell. If you've never come to that place in your life, do so today. You have no clue when your earthly life will end. No clue. And at that point, it will be too late for you to make this decision about your eternal fate. If you have, and you see the Holy Spirit transforming your life, marvel, as Jesus says here, at the salvation of your soul. Live the rest of your life utmost in reflection of that spiritual resurrection and look forward with excitement to the coming and soon physical resurrection of our bodies at the event of the rapture. We'll be talking more about these future resurrections next week. This is not a casual, oh, I'll live for Jesus when I feel like it. This is not, I'm going to pick and choose what I think sounds good and sounds fair and sounds relevant to the modern world from God's word. This is not, I'm going to obey and follow Jesus in these areas of my life, but he has no authority over this area of my life. This is a fully sold out life of living for Jesus. You either take all of God, all of who he is, all of what his salvation plan is, all of his authority over every area of your life, and what his word instructs and teaches, or you take none of it. May we all take all of Jesus and who he is. May we all surrender all of our lives to his authority, not holding anything back or thinking we know better than him and his word. May we all let the Holy Spirit permeate every area of our lives, changing and transforming all of who we once were. May we fully live out the spiritually resurrected life doing the work Jesus has called us to do for his kingdom. And may we all look forward with childlike excitement to the day when our salvation and resurrection will be fully experienced on that glorious day our Savior and King returns to take us to be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. There are some very deep truths in this, deep truths about who you are, about who God the Father is, how you two relate to one another, and what it all means for us. Lord God, I pray that if we're not honoring you in, in a certain area of our lives, we get that right with you right now. We know this life is short, and we have no clue how many minutes any of us even have in this life we could walk out these doors today and get hit by a car none of us have any clue lord we're grateful that you do have your perfect plan and you have all the knowledge in the world 
Well, Lord, I pray that this might be a wake-up call to all of us, really. To those of us who have never placed our faith and trust in you for our salvation. For those who maybe have harbored sin in our lives, refuse to get it right with you. Or some other area of our life we, we don't allow, we don't surrender to your authority. Lord, I pray that if there's anything we're holding back from you, I pray we get that right with you right now. We know that you are the king. We know that you are our savior. We know that you are the ultimate authority in our lives, and we must honor the son. I pray that we would take this seriously. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.